Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. Hi and welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast. I'm Andy Marsland. Today I welcome Chris Dorman, Business Development Manager of Clean Hydrogen at BOC South Pacific. So thanks for joining us, Chris, and welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast. Thank you. Very nice to be here, Andy. Good stuff. And you're you're down in Sydney. You've uh, experienced your first spot of freedom for a while over the weekend, long weekend. I did. Um, it's getting very exciting here with um, vaccinated picnicking rules. It's, it's very good, actually, to see so many young families out and about in parks now as things hopefully get better in Sydney. So um, we're nearly there and looking forward to um, a few more freedoms, I think, in a couple of weeks, which is very exciting. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Really feel, feel for you guys and uh, you know all the Victorians as well who've been in a similar situation for so long. I thought we could start by, if you could outline for the listeners what is meant by clean hydrogen or how BOC would define it and what you consider to be as clean hydrogen and what is not clean hydrogen? It's a very good question. And hydrogen is something that's, you know, starting to show all, all colours of the rainbow. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of complexity to it, but I think there's a lot of people who get a bit confused about it. So if you're looking at green hydrogen, that effectively is hydrogen produced through electrolysis. So you're using energy to split water. If you're looking blue hydrogen, that's effectively using conventional technology to convert methane into hydrogen, but you're um, effectively capturing that CO2. And if you're looking at brown hydrogen, that's effectively what many people do today in terms of converting methane and natural gas to hydrogen, and that's not seen as clean, although you can clean that up via capturing the CO2 potentially. Or you can use a biomethane source, which will also give you the same outcome. So I think there's a hundred different definitions of hydrogen types. So there's even pink, which is my favorite. So that's nuclear hydrogen. Not a big issue in Australia, obviously. I think France are looking at, uh, obviously, because uh, I think about 70 or 80% of their power comes from nuclear. So I think France are looking into that pink hydrogen. And so are the UK, because they've got some really good cellar fields up there um, in the north. They've got some good opportunities for that. The good thing is that despite the, the confusion, there will be a sort of certif- a certification of origin scheme that's going to come into Australia, which will really define that and hopefully support an export business to countries, which will also define how green they want their hydrogen effectively. Yes, yeah. So your role is... Um Business development manager for clean hydrogen. We're talking about obviously green. Does blue come into that? And yeah, what about things like turquoise? Yeah, we see a place for both at BSC and internationally. I mean, there's still a space for grey hydrogen, albeit that'll be cleaned up over over time. I mean, in many cases, there are probably some advantages of starting off things like transport and other sectors using the local available hydrogen, because then you don't have a huge amount of investment. But um, you know, we see it all going from to blue and certainly green over time. And, you know, we have technology that supports green and blue. And, you know, they'll, they'll both play a part, I think, and it will really be dictated by the end consumer ultimately, whether that be overseas or locally in terms of how, how green the credentials they want. Yeah. And you've been employed by BOC or Lindy Group for 
what going on 18 years that's a fantastic stint I think I think considering the uh the average duration in the job is something like two and a half years these days so um yeah yeah you've worked for them internationally I believe as well as Australia yeah I mean Andy I've been very lucky I've worked in Europe and Australia New Zealand and it's just been a great number of interesting opportunities that allowed me to grow within BSC. It's amazing all the sectors that use gas. You know, I've dealt with everyone from CSIRO to the space sector and in most of the universities. So it's an interesting place. I think everyone assumes that gas is boring, but the applications of gas are pretty interesting and, you know, go across all sorts of weird and wonderful customer bases, which has really been very interesting for me. Yeah, fantastic. Perhaps we could just delve into that a little bit further. Yeah, so what were you doing in the space sector? So we, where we can support the space sector is through fuel. So we've got some work we're doing at the moment with a company called Hypersonics, where we're assisting them getting to the space where they can get um, liquid hydrogen for their fuel, also helping with them with their engineering, obviously not building rockets, but the gas-related engineering. And we've done a bit of work on supply for... Gilmore, another interesting Queensland-based company, and we do a lot with Rocket Labs in New Zealand. So we're an interesting company that often provides critical things and components to, to most sectors, including space, when you look at the fuel. So I've learned a lot about rockets, actually, recently. It's very exciting. Yes. So it sounds like the remit is extremely broad, and I was reading uh, in the research into this uh, discussion. So Lindy Group is a huge organization. I think one 133 billion US dollars as a market cap, over 2 million customers, 80,000 employees, 6,500 patents. So it's huge. And uh, BOC as an entity with that. So I think there's about, Lindy Group has got about 5,000 engineers and operates about 1,000 plants. Do you mind giving the listeners a bit of an overview of the scope of some of those projects and operations that that BOC and Lindy are involved with? Yeah, and it probably makes sense to focus on, we have plants around the world focusing on a range of different sectors. You know, if you look at um, what we do internationally, we supply everything with from oxygen to steel mills to actually a pretty significant oxygen demand during COVID as well with um, that sort of keeping a number of ICUs afloat in Australia and further afield. So we have that sort of air gas business, but, you know, really interesting in the clean hydrogen space is our hydrogen value chain. So we do everything from producing hydrogen either through conventional technology of steam methane reforming. We have carbon capture options and we also do a lot with electrolysis. Then we, you know, look through the rest of the supply chain and, you know, as a group we've got, you know, over 200 hydrogen refuelers for public transport, um, including trains, ferries, etc. So we've got a really good technology stack in the hydrogen space. And, you know, a lot of those learned experiences um, really set us up well to localise those opportunities locally as well. I mean, we've, um, as everyone who localises technology can, you know, talk to, there's always a few challenges when you're bringing stuff into Australia. Our, Our standards aren't necessarily consistent with the rest of the world, rightly or wrongly. So, you know, it's been a really good experience, but you know, really enjoying seeing the hydrogen sector develop. And, you know, I think it's going to start developing a little bit quicker as we all come out of our various COVID restrictions over the next year as well. Yeah, I've got a number of follow-up questions, Chris. And I think one of the things about hydrogen is that it's got such a breadth of applications and areas of focus. So you mentioned about oxygen. 
obviously with hydrogen, you're splitting water off and then there's oxygen. Is there a commercial case for that oxygen? Have you looked into that? It's a really interesting question. We think there is, and there are a couple of applications where we can probably make that work over time. We haven't been able to do it as yet, but we think there is a good case in the water treatment sector for using the oxygen effectively as part of the water cleanup or disinfection. So we think that's probably interesting. We also think that there may be an opportunity in the gold mines, although we need to sort of work through that. But in reality, you're using oxygen as a different value stream. And, you know, what we've seen so far is those hydrogen business cases really need to stack up by themselves based on the hydrogen costings. And if you do that, then you can really utilize the oxygen offtake as well. And But you wouldn't want to put too much value on it because, you know, the pricing of oxygen is pretty good value in Australia anyway because we've got big plants everywhere. The 200 refuelers, are they in operations at the moment and where are those geographically located? So we have a number of refuelers, obviously, across the world. The vast majority are in Europe and the UK. We've also got a number in California and Southeast Asia with a focus on Korea. We are seeing them operational and a lot of really interesting learnings from running those because it's while it's not new tech and we've been doing it for 10, 15 years, for those who are not used to dealing with high-pressure hydrogen, sort of a 1,000 bar, 700 bar, whatever, it is a different challenge to conventional hydrogen uses and certainly a different challenge to petroleum, which is very what's liquid-based. Yeah. Where are you focusing on? Where are going to be the biggest markets for you then? So obviously South Korea, not North Korea. Japan, the States, are you you pretty active then in the States and California? Yeah, very active in California. I think we've got pretty high ambition in most countries. We see some really good opportunities in Australia, and this is a tier one country for us, as well as New Zealand. South Korea and Japan have gone very hard in terms of government incentives, which has really created some fantastic opportunities. You know, where we've seen the government sort of step in, not necessarily in terms of funding, but offtake agreements, that's where I think things have moved a little bit more quickly. And you can see that in Queensland where, you know, they've agreed, the Q-Fleet guys have agreed an offtake agreement with us for hydrogen. So, you know, when those offtake agreements are done for vehicles, that's when we see that sector move relatively quickly. Japan's a bit of an interesting country. We don't have a huge footprint there, so that probably wouldn't be in our top five growth countries. But certainly Korea, the APAC region, which we sit in, Europe and and the US are really starting to see some progress, which is exciting. So it sounds like yeah, off-take agreements is going to be pretty key. Um, what, what are the governments of Australia doing at the moment, and then what more could they could they be doing? And by that, are you talking about pushing out through their procurement plans in the long term. So say, for example, councils might be looking at transitioning their fleets over to over to hydrogen. Is that then pushing out whoever wins that tender must be running those vehicles off, off hydrogen? Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Yeah. I, I mean, I think um, each state and territory, and I suppose for a national level, they've got a slightly different approach. And I think Everyone's acknowledged that you know hydrogen is part of the pathway to net zero, I think. Obviously, you've got a range of things. So electrification is also one. We've got biogas and other, other derivatives and even just things like process improvement. But I think for me, to get hydrogen moving more quickly, I think um, 
you know, there's a really good lever that all of the governments can pull. You know, they all have huge numbers of buses. And, you know, by saying we'll have 300 buses in our state on hydrogen, which is a, a small percentage for most of the states, you know, that creates enough demand for a good size production plant and will facilitate further sectors like the heavy trucking sector. So I think that is what we're going to start to see more and more in the different different states and territories. And what we've seen so far is that it's really cost-effective to do a an electric bus trial but for, of one or two buses. But when you move to scale, that becomes quite expensive because of the extra electrical infrastructure you've got to install. And with hydrogen, you really get benefits at economies of scale. One and two trucks, you know, while it's useful to prove concepts, it's pretty expensive. And most of these concepts have been proven overseas anyway. Yeah, it's not going to tip the needle, is it? And we need to get to that sort of critical mass, don't we, for prices start starting to fall significantly? Well, I mean, we, my, my view and sort of the dream I see in the future is that you'll have a liquid hydrogen refinery in every state and they'll effectively have you know, fuel security for their public transport and other sectors. And, and the, why we, the reason we see liquid hydrogen as key is because you can ship that really cost-effectively. It's just more cost-effective to move larger distances. So we see that as a, um, you know, whether it's in Toowoomba in Queensland or, or Ipswich, it, it doesn't really matter. We, we see a range about 500 kilometres. It sort of will move pretty cost-effectively. And, you know, once you get to scale and volume, that's what we're seeing in Korea and other places. It's really all about liquid liquid hydrogen and um, and still gas in the car or truck or bus, but we see that as the future. Yes, yeah. So just to clarify, shipping as well would be liquid hydrogen? Shipping's a, I think for me that's a to be confirmed. I think there is limited shipping capacity or there's very limited ships that can move liquid hydrogen. And, you know, you look at a liquid natural gas, an LNG tanker, they're, they're designed around the chemical properties of LNG. I'm not sure we've got to that at scale with liquid hydrogen, but um, it's not to say we won't get there. And I think that probably will be part of the export play in sort of 10 years, but, but not in the short term. I think we might see some green ammonia moved overseas before that. But, um, you know, if you're looking at liquid hydrogen, that's a further, further down the track type piece for export yeah how do you see the cost curve looking then into the future as the as the prices come down where are we, where are we at now and then where are we likely to be in sort of five or ten years time we are seeing the cost of electrolysis come down at the same time we're also seeing you know aside from wa which is a different energy market we're also seeing you know natural gas prices probably go up so they'll probably hit each other at a point which would mean that you know gray and blue was not that more much more expensive much cheaper than electrolysis. I think everyone's talking about the $2 per kilo piece, but I think we all need to be careful in terms of understanding what that is. So that's effectively $2 from the electrolyzer at low pressure. So I think we need to be realistic around you know, what sort of price that, that will be at a nozzle or a bowser for a truck driver or a bus driver. And I think that you know, we can get towards diesel parity and lower, which is sort of $12 and lower, you know, certainly within the next five years quite easily. Where do you see the business case for continued focus on electrification then? Is that the smaller vehicles that, you, that you're thinking? 
I mean, I think um, electrification is going to have a, a huge role in a range of sectors, but certainly, I, you know, I'd see that yourself and myself will probably drive a, high, a, a an electric car first. But, you know, technology is always changing and can shift, so, you know, could be wrong on that. But I, I do think that um, in the heavy vehicle sector, buses and trucks is where hydrogen's real sweet spot is. And the smaller vehicles, probably electrification, but there's also going to be some interesting use cases for electrification in cities of buses. And that's really going to be around things like the local population. Can you hold hydrogen on site? So there's a couple of considerations, but the typical view from BSC is bigger vehicles will be hydrogen in the majority and smaller vehicles will be battery, but there'll be a mishmash of both based on use cases. Yes, yeah. And so end users, we're talking uh, industry feedstock. So obviously, we've spoken about the transportation fuel, industry heat. So that's for producing steel and zinc and other industrial processes. Yeah, there'll be a couple. So we've got, I mean, we already use a huge amount of hydrogen internationally to make ammonia. And ammonia is typically used for fertilizers and um, and explosives. One of the um, the interesting things that um, has become a, a you know a new term is green explosives, which is a little bit like an oxymoron. But um, you know we we see that sector coming on relatively quickly in the mines. We also um, see hydrogen used in the steel making process um, and cement processes. So hydrogen is probably one of the solutions to really hard to abate sectors. And, you know, there'll be new use cases. I mean, hydrogen as a molecule, we've been supplying for, you know, 100 plus years. And, you know, it was pretty unsexy for many, many years. You know, now people are really seeing all the different use cases. So we expect that to to change and shift. Do you see hydrogen playing a part in buffering on a a daily basis and storage? Yeah, I think it can. Again, there'll be a range of different pieces that can be used for that sort of activity. So you've got large-scale batteries, and obviously we've got a couple of them in place at the moment. It could be a really interesting future where the natural gas grid, for example, turns into the largest hydrogen battery in the world. Who knows? So that is an option. The challenge of um, large, large-scale is um, cost of storage. So that might be a limitation, but it also may create an opportunity. So there's all sorts of new technology coming out in the storage space. One of the most interesting things I found out about the other day was salt caverns are apparently key to large-scale storage. Yeah, I'd heard about that in the States. Uh, they're looking at that quite significantly, aren't they? Yeah, and, and Geoscience Australia has actually highlighted where the big salt caverns could be in Australia. It's pretty technical and it's very interesting and, and maybe they will be part of the solution. I actually think all bets are off in terms of there's going to be lots of new technology piled together to heat anything near net zero by 2050. So, you know, for me, you've got to have an open mind to all of these things. You never know who's going to be the winner, but I'm sure hydrogen will be part of that part of that winning race. <laughs> Absolutely. I hadn't realised there were salt caverns in, uh, in Australia that could be used. Yeah, there's a couple of areas in Queensland that look quite interesting for that. And then you've got um, up in northern WA. So, and who knows what other opportunities will come out as, as different storage techniques. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did hear the other day that salt caverns shrink every year, which is very exciting. So, um, And I'm not going to go through the technicalities there because um, I was a bit lost once they started talking to that. But they're a pretty complicated structure. <laughs> so no one go and dig them today. It takes a bit more engineering than that. 
I attended a presentation a couple of weeks ago by a company that were looking at doing large diameter drilling as a, a storage. So we're talking five to 10 meter diameter drilling. And I think they were said that they go down, you know, 150 or 200 meters, some, something like that. Yeah. Has that been investigated too much from your side? Yeah, we. I assume you're talking Arden's underground, and we're working with them to to um, assess the technology and the use cases that we think could be quite interesting. So it looks like pretty exciting technology, and they've got a really interesting pedigree in 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 large scale hole boring. So now it's it's again, you know, we're looking at technology all the time in the hydrogen space. There's a lot of new stuff. There's also a lot of um, weird and wonderful announcements that are probably less real. But, um, you know, once you sort of look at the positives and negatives of anything, you sort of see what the next steps will be. <laughs> Chris, we've known each other for probably getting on a year now, and I'm always sort of fascinated by the, the breadth of your knowledge. And I think through your own research and organizations coming to be you or to BOC to pitch these things, what have been some of the weird and wonderful approaches that, that you've had around the hydrogen sector? Most people who come to BSC assume that we've got infinite uses for hydrogen. So they come and tell us that we should buy all their hydrogen and we're like, well, no, um, <laughs> we can build our own hydrogen plant or we'll work with you. But, um, you know, we're not just about to offtake agreements. You know, over the years at, um, at BSC, I've had um, all sorts of weird and wonderful new ways to cremate bodies, which we talked about previously with hydrogen and other things. We fumigated a mummy a couple of years ago because it was um, having insects um, bore into it in University of Sydney. So um, in terms of weird and wonderful applications, there's not many I don't think I've seen. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think I read online that there's about 10 current projects that BOC have got around Australia. Is that correct? Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, I mean, we've obviously got our conventional hydrogen business, which is, you know, relatively significant and we've got sources in we have an offtake agreement with AGIG in South Australia. We've got our own source in Victoria and Queensland and in Auckland. So, you know, on top of that, we're also doing, you know, a range of mobility projects. So we've worked very closely with Toyota on the Eco Park down in Victoria. The most interesting and challenging thing about that was the fact that um, we did that during COVID lockdowns in Victoria. So we were unable to get anyone out from Europe who would normally put that in. So we've got a lot of learnings from that, which are really useful moving forwards. We're also working with Fortescue Future Industries in the Pilbara for electrolysis and refueling of their coaches, which is a really exciting project. And it's great to see you know, the leadership Fortescue have taken in the hydrogen space. You know, There, there are a lot of really interesting companies who have really gone high in, on different colours of hydrogen. But um, when you see those sort of groups investing, I suppose it gives us all confidence that it's a reality. FFI have been extremely vocal and visible in the media about their focus on green hydrogen. I believe they've grown their FFI business from a standing start to about 300 people. And I think the project that you're working to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, there's about 20 coaches, isn't it, that they're, they're highs on buses that they're uh, bringing in? I think it's 10 high-zone buses in the first instance, but um, you know, even just looking at the social media of Fortescue, so the stuff that we can tell you about that's um, in the public domain, they've got some huge plans to do all sorts of different things with hydrogen. So you know, that's obviously phase one of their project up there. But you know, we, we see that there is a really interesting use case for lots of mining equipment as well, and we're working on a few other projects behind the scenes on that 
as well. And they're first movers. So, you know, a lot of credit to to Fortescue in terms of really pushing hard. It's been interesting from afar to watch their reaction and interactions with some of the other colours of hydrogen. But, um, you know, for me, we'll stay out of that. We've got technology that can support different groups. And I think there's different spaces for different types of hydrogen moving forwards. And, you know, they'll, some will be interim and some will be long-term. But, you know, I think if we spend less time focused on the colour of the hydrogen and more, more time on the end-use application, I think that's probably a positive anyway. I had a similar discussion with a previous podcast guest about the same topic as well. You mentioned before about the project that was achieved or done in um, in Victoria in the middle of COVID. What were your learnings through that? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more so from a skills perspective. Were the skills quickly adaptable from other sectors? And can you give us a kind of rundown of what the project was, what skills were kind of brought in, where the potential gaps are for the future more broadly in, in terms of skills and jobs? So. We're lucky from a starting point that we have people who deal with... We've got an engineering team that deal with hydrogen already. So on that basis, we already had those base-level skills on flammability, pressure, everything there. I think the difference is when you're talking about refueling of um, vehicles. So the Toyota project looks at cars, trucks, buses, and forklifts. So it covers both 700 and 350 bar and an electrolyzer. I think the... The biggest challenge, and it's interesting, when I'm talking to people about skills, you know, one of the first questions I ask is, what do you think the biggest risks around hydrogen is and how do you manage that? And most people refer me to the Hindenburg, which is pretty unhelpful. So the real challenge is working with pressure. So when you're putting in our um, our refuelers, there's a small vessel that has pressure at 1,000 bar. And that's where the real risks around these things um, need to be managed, that material compatibility and flammability. We've got an excellent engineer called Mez who spent a lot of time on the phone to Europe learning, skilling up effectively. And to be honest, if he wasn't such a good engineer, then I think it would have been a challenge. And, you know, we've seen most hydrogen projects that cover refuelers of scale have been delayed. And that's because of COVID, it's because of all sorts of things. And our borders are a real issue. But, you know, the blessing in disguise for us is that, you know, now we've got that skill set. We're now maintaining these ourselves in Australia. So, you know, that localization journey is probably quicker than we first expected, but it's going to be really meaningful. So we can point to real people in Australia who've done real projects, especially given the uncertainties around borders in the foreseeable future. So... You mentioned about the, the vehicles, so the cars have got 700 bar, is that right? And the truck's 350. And with regard to the kind of pressures, I understand that there's, instead of having a solid metal capsule, then there's uh, technology when it's more like a, a wrap. So if anything did go wrong, the capsule tears rather than explodes. Have you heard of, heard about that? Yeah, so we, we've done a lot of work in cylinder technology, um, including hydrogen. and. It's an interesting sort of question because if you look at the safety around hydrogen vessels, whether it be for cars or other pieces, there's a lot more technology that's in them than your conventional petrol or diesel engine in many ways. And it's they've got different but comparable risks. So we are very confident that, that the new technology, cylinder technology and the old cylinder technology 
is very robust. The reason why they're looking at composites, so wrapped cylinders, is to be able to get up to higher pressures, so 700 bar, but really lightweight, because obviously weight is important in cars and trucks. So, you know, we I've got high levels of comfort. We wouldn't touch, to be honest, BSC, at BSC, safety is our number one priority, so we wouldn't touch stuff that we didn't think was um, was safe, whether that be to our, ourselves, our staff, or... Um, or end consumers. So it's something we're pretty hot on. But, you know, those cylinders are very impressive. You should see, there's pictures of YouTube and how they're created. It's amazing technology. Yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, like we spoke about, the technology is just improving all the time as well. Are BOC's projects within Australia, are they producing for domestic use or is that for export? Most, all of our business is local, whether it be Australia or New Zealand. I think that export will come and there are some really interesting projects that are in development there. We have an engineering arm that is currently working on many of those export projects and you know their role is not only to to provide our technology stack, you know everything from ITM electrolyzers to to refuelers if they need to or more importantly liquefaction where we have some core skills is to really integrate those plants and work on the whole supply and value chain. And we've got a number of people in country who are focusing on that at the moment from BSC Lindy. The projects that I'm working on are you know, very much domestic focus with a focus on building that mobility sector, which we think is first. You know, Even the work we're doing with Qfleet cars is all around stimulating that refueling market to allow further vehicles to be added. So effectively, ARENA and the Queensland government have taken, have subsidised the next users of hydrogen. And I think that's a really neat way to expedite the, the hydrogen sector. We touched upon the standards earlier. How do you think Australia can best assist the industry to grow and what things can happen to help organisations? And I guess if we look on the flip side, what has kind of happened in the past in your experience in similar industries that we need to avoid? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I think the first thing is that we need to have national standards and not state-based standards. So, you know, as an example, the other day we came across a, a nuance in, in Western Australia where effectively a fuel cell is a type of appliance so it means it's covered by a different piece of legislation. Whereas if we were putting hydrogen into an in, you know internal combustion engine, it would be classified as a a car or mobile device. So you've got these you know funny nuances of legislation that was developed you know many years ago, and it doesn't it's not fit for purpose in many ways. I think that's important to come up with a national framework. And BOC have got some you know, team members on those Australian and New Zealand standards to do that. So we've got a very smart guy called Billy Chan, who most people in the hydrogen sector probably know. And I think we need to make sure we don't overcomplicate it at a state or federal level, because the more complexity you have on it, or the more difference you have from international standards, then the more likely it's going to cost the Australian sector more money, because it'll have to be localised. And we already see that with things like pressure vessel legislation, flammability rating, which is different to to Europe. And, you know, what we think as BSC is, is you need to 
align it to a good safe standard, let's not reinvent the wheel in Australia because that's just going to add cost and slow things down. Yeah, great answer. So we spoke about that safety, technology, any other challenges that need to be addressed for the industry and, and BOC to make the transition to hydrogen? Yeah, I think you know we need to get more, more vehicles available as quickly as possible. So that, that really helps with the volume growing in Australia. So I think we need more available vehicles on the roads. We need to have legislative certainty. You know, you look at all of the states, they've shown exceptional leadership on net zero targets, which is good. And, you know, they continue to make further further developments in that space. I think New South Wales uh, made a, a new announcement about 50% reduction by 2030 last week. So all the states are doing all the hard work and we need to get a bit of political stability at a federal level. Otherwise, we're going to continue to sort of, you know, go around in circles around climate policies. And I think, you know, my, my personal view is even if it's not a perfect approach, a bipartisan approach that's pretty good should help us because then we get rid of the, the toxic environment around the environment. So that's a key thing, to be honest. I mean, to be fair to the federal government, they are putting some really good incentives in place, but we need regulatory certainty and we need to stop having the old disagreements around whether climate change is a thing. I think there's enough science to suggest it probably is. And, you know, on that basis, we just need to get on with something which future-proofs Australian jobs as well. I mean, ultimately, you know, there are some sectors that, you know, may stroke will be challenged in the future. And I think by pretending that they won't be doesn't help anyone. It's around how do we help those people who are in a coal sector, for example, how do we help them with new skill sets, whether it's in renewables or other things, it's not just pretending that the world won't shift away from coal because it's pretty inevitable, unfortunately. The other, the other thing is, I think, if we get those targeted incentives right. So if we get the state government committing to offtake for something, for, for hydrogen, then that really will expedite things. Interestingly, the New South Wales government did a, they've committed to solar and renewable PPAs as part of their transition. So they're trying to generate those PPAs through that. You can do the same in hydrogen and, you know, Queensland's done a great job by bringing the Q-fleet trucks on. So I think once they, now they've got all those policy frameworks in place, everyone's got a hydrogen strategy. It's now about committing some takeoff and that will allow more production. It'll have a lower cost to serve. And they'll take some of the heavy lifting effectively, unfortunately, though, from which will help trucks in the future. So that, that's where I think we should sort of really focus government incentives. Yeah, well, well said. There needs to be some brave and direct conversations happening at that federal level. The National Hydrogen Strategy, I think it was 2019 or 2020 that it came out, it did focus on a, a net growth if we are able to capitalize on the opportunity ahead of us. But I guess if there's continued lack of focus or lack of cohesion at the federal level, maybe in a few years' time, that that opportunity for being a net exporter will sort of pass us by as a lot of the a lot of the other countries who have got focus on wanting to be an exporter comes to the party. And we've got the opportunity for having such cheap renewable 
energy that we could, I heard it said, has been able to ship our sunshine overseas. So there is that focus on um, being able to capitalize on on that whilst we can and, and setting up the infrastructure in place to be a major player on the international stage. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, if we don't get our you know, ducks in a row, then you know, when these large export pieces start to happen, we'll lose opportunities to whether it be South America, you know, Morocco, the Middle East. There's a lot of people who are willing to do it. And, you know, we do have a really good opportunity in terms of, you know, both solar and and wind in many ways. And, you know, at the moment, you know, if you even look at petrol prices at the moment, Australia doesn't control our own destiny. So there are some really positive impacts in terms of fuel security and all sorts of stuff. If we can, ha- if we can build a domestic then export market, I think we'd all be pretty happy if we weren't at the um, having to rely on OPEC to sort of get to work in the morning, given that they are a cartel. <laughs> Absolutely. Being in control of our own, own destiny, as it were. Um, what do you think realistically can be achieved by the sector in the next five years? Within five years, we would like to have at least one state running a liquid refinery for their public transport, maybe multiple. Most states have committed that by 2025 they won't be buying any more conventional diesel engines so you know we'd expect to see a lot more activity for hydrogen and electric buses and we would expect to start seeing a lot more trucks on the road so you've got Heisen you've got some other OEMs who are doing a lot in Europe so I would hope that they start turning up on the back of seeing enough infrastructure to make it work probably starting it back to base but you know we will have the first refueler in Australia at a commercial petrol station, you know, early next year. So these pieces of infrastructure will be available um, pretty soon. Fantastic. So you're talking a liquid hydrogen refueler in a state. So we're talking sort of 250, 300 buses from the scale that you were mentioning before. I think that'd be, um, you know, you'd do 300 buses, um, liquid hydrogen refinery, and that opens up the, the the door to test some exports. If you've got, you know, a 50 ton a day or something being used, uh, being converted to liquid hydrogen, so I think it um, it really creates some interesting opportunities. It also, to be honest, the sooner we get liquid, the more likely we're going to see more space activity in Australia, and I think you know, space is a very interesting growing sector for Australia, not just for hydrogen, but for other things. And, you know, the future of telecommunications is really going to be about space. So I think we want to be on that on that sector as Australia because it's going to be really interesting. And we've got some, you know, again, we've got some unique characteristics which set us up to be pretty good there. We're a pretty stable government. We have lots we can shoot over vast expanses of water. So I really think that's a, um, you know, the more flexible we are, the more we look at hydrogen as a whole piece, the more likely we're going to get those really interesting sectors into Australia. Yes, yeah. So we've spoken about space. We've spoken about the mining sector and having some good progress there. A lot of heavy transportation, green cement and green steel ready to scale. Any other areas? We're not really touched upon the aviation sector. Are there many players here in Australia that are looking at aviation? Yeah, I mean, I think aviation is definitely going to be interesting. We, we've signed an MOU, I think, internationally. If you look in the press, New Zealand have just done something with them as well. So I think it will be part of the aviation bundle. It won't be first. 
And a lot of that's to do with how long planes last. So their typical life is, because it's an expensive asset, is, you know, 25, 30, probably longer. But I think hydrogen will play a part in the aviation fuel sector, whether it's pure hydrogen or some sort of hydrogen derivative, that's also possible. And we're very so we're, we're working very closely with with a number of people who are in that sector because we think it's um it's it's definitely going to happen. It's just a timing piece for aviation. Yes, yeah. Is there much focus on using hydrogen within shipping as the shipping fuel? Yeah, I think there's potential. I mean, the, if you look at some of the difficult to abate sectors, um, international shipping is a significant one. Whether it's hydrogen as the as the fuel source in that sector, I don't think we know yet. I think there's a range of opportunities there with different hydrogen derivatives. So it could be methanol, it could be ammonia. I saw a great thing the other day on BBC World Service where they were putting up, um, you know, effectively old school sails to help with um, with it as well. It was a bit more complex than an old school sail that you'd see on the first fleet. But um, you know, I, I think there's going to be some really creative solutions in that shipping sector and. I think everyone now realises how um, reliant we are on that international shipping sector. I think we probably just took it for granted, but with you know different challenges of COVID and state lockdowns and all sorts of stuff, I think we all now know how how interdependent we are on global shipping routes. Um, and even when that ship got caught in the Suez Canal, who would have thought that that would impact Australia at all? And you know we're running out of widgets or whatever, so. You know, we need to do that and it's a big sector and it's hard to abate. But the final solution, I'm not sure we know, but I think it will be a hydrogen derivative of some sort. Chris, I'm conscious of your time. We're just uh, coming to the end of the session. Is there any message that you want to get out to the listeners? Any other information about your work or BOC that you'd like to share with them? I mean, it's been a great opportunity, Andy, to sort of catch up with you. I think hydrogen is a really important vector and one of the vectors for decarbonisation. We're always open to talking to people at BRC, so happy to, for anyone to contact me. I think, you know, the whole hydrogen space there, you're already seeing some, you know, unexpected bedfellows, and I think that's really exciting. I think even people like BRC who've done hydrogen for many years have seen that we can't do it all on our own. So I think really strong partnerships with people with strong, compelling ideas, and technology and other things is um, is really important. So, you know, we see that as great. I Please don't approach me every second week to take your hydrogen, although we will have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> and are you happy to share your email address in the show notes? Yeah, that's fine. It'd be great to see if um, anyone's interested. But I think um, the whole, I think we're all going to see a significant, you know, focus on, on environment and, you know, improving our quality of life and, you know, quality of air. So, you know, if you're interested in how hydrogen can do that, I'm happy to sort of have a chat with anyone. Chris, thanks again for your thoughts, sharing your knowledge and the discussions that you and I have had over the past nine or 12 months have always been extremely impressive, the depth of your, your knowledge. You mentioned about collaboration and I think you your actions and the interactions that we've had. Chris and I are involved quite heavily with H2Q, the hydrogen industry cluster. And yeah, you're one of the leaders and always sort of step up with the workshop. So thanks for doing what you preach 
and uh, getting involved, collaborating and having that bigger picture, I guess, as, as the focus, then the more we can sort of build on those relationships across multiple organisations, multiple different areas. And I think we have be able to uh, take advantage of the opportunity ahead of us. I look forward to it. And I look forward to um, early next year getting up and seeing the H2Q group again. So that's, um, no, it'll be exciting to see. I think opportunities are going to move quicker next year as well with the world opening up. So it's a pretty exciting time for all of us. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time.